out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So clearly here in Deuteronomy 7, we can see overlays, thematic overlays with what we read in Exodus 19, But I would put this question. When did God choose Israel to be his people? When did God choose Israel to be his people? On the one hand, we could say, well, before the foundations of the world, right? Ephesians uh, 1 verse 4, he chose us before the foundation of the world. That's certainly true. The Lord knew before he created anything that Israel would enter into covenant with him at Sinai and they would be his people. He decided before creation that he was going to do that. In another sense, we could say that God chose Israel when he called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And he said, you come with me, you leave your family, your kindred, your land, and I will make you a great nation. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So in another sense, we could say that the Lord chose Israel when he chose Abraham. But we could maybe most appropriately say that the Lord chose Israel at Sinai when they entered into covenant with him. Part of the reason God chose them is because he made a promise to the ancestors, right? So that is verse 7, verse 8. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So there's kind of a twofold reason. First, the Lord chose you because he loves you. Second, he chose you because he's, making, he's keeping a promise he made with the ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But let's put the question this way. Why did God not choose the Israelites 200 years before this generation? Why is it that he chose this generation instead of ancestors 100 years sooner? or 200 years sooner, or 300 years sooner. It was with none of those generations that the Lord covenanted at Sinai. It was this generation. This is the one where he bore on eagles' wings, brought them to himself, entered into covenant with them. It's this generation. Technically, the previous generation, but we'll come to that later on. Uh, But all, all this to say, Moses starts in Horeb, in recounting Israel's uh, Israel's spiritual heritage, because at Sinai, they became God's people in a way they weren't God's people previously. So, uh, begin at Horeb. Uh, We might even say, uh, using categories of Deuteronomy 7, the love that he lavished on the Sinai generation was unlike any other love he lavished on any other generation previously. And so Moses begins at that point. Uh, We could say Israel was married to Yahweh at Sinai. uh, And now the honeymoon is over when we get to verse 7. But the second reason to mention Mount Sinai, which is Horeb. uh, So uh, beyond the Lord our God is said to us in Horeb, which is Sinai. uh, This was the place of divine revelation, which is another reason to begin there. He, He recalls their minds back to that time. 
uh, when they had this sort of honeymoon period, if you will. It was rocky, to be sure, but it was still nonetheless a honeymoon period of sorts at Sinai before they are to turn and take their journey on to the next stage in their union in verse 7. But before we get there, what is it that the Lord commanded Israel? He said to us in Horeb, verse 6, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. That does not mean that the Lord is kicking Israel out of Horeb, though he, he is encouraging them to leave. What this is, is the reminder that the Lord called Israel not just to receive the law. They were at Sinai to receive the law and enter into covenant. They were supposed to enjoy the fruits of that covenant. And they will not experience the fullness of that covenant until they are in the land that the Lord also swore to give to their ancestors and to their offspring after them. And so when it says that they are to turn and take their journey, that is something they are supposed to do for their own advantage, for their own goodness. The Lord is telling them, there is more for you, there is more goodness in store, turn and go and take possession of the good things that I have promised to give to you. And so they are to turn and journey for themselves and enter the land of the Amorites, or the land of Canaan. And so, uh, verse 7, turn and take your journey, and go to the hill country of the Amorites. And then in verse 8, See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers. Now, the way this is worded, it would almost seem as though the Israelites can just kind of stroll right into the land of Canaan, right? Just kind of walk right in. Um, It's theirs. I've set the land before you. Go. Uh, It sounds quite simple in command and looks quite simple on paper. Is it really as easy as it sounds to enter Canaan? On the one hand, no. Enemies abound, right? Uh, So in verse 7, It is the hill country of the Amorites and all their neighbors. Towards the end of verse 7, the Canaanites and Lebanon. All the way to the river Euphrates, there's a great deal of land, and that land is already occupied by people. They will have to contend with a lot of people who do not want them to be there. The journey takes time. And on that journey, they have plenty of time to deliberate about the difficulties of the task that lie ahead of them. How many of you know the angst of a big meeting that's coming up or a discussion you have to have with someone that you really don't want to have and you kind of fret about it? How many of you have ever asked someone, would you pray for me because I have this thing coming up and I just got a lot of anxiety about it, right? Um, We know that experience. How many of you have ever said, would you pray for me because I'm going to a place where people are going to try and kill me and I have to stab them with a spear first? That's a lot of angst. Have you ever said to someone, would you pray for me? The place I'm going has people who are roughly eight feet tall and their arm reach extends further than mine and I have to cut them off before they kill me. Would you pray for me? Um, There's a lot of angst going on in these people, they know where they're going, and they know the sort of people who are there roughly. They'll, they'll see with their own eyes in a little bit. But they know what sets before them, and no doubt it would produce a little bit of anxiety. Now, on the one hand, our angst 
is what drives us to prepare well. And how many people do you know are just kind of, you know, they're laid back and what will happen? It'll happen, what will happen, right? And it can lead them to being ill-equipped and ill-prepared for what they're actually walking into. So angst at its best can drive us to good preparation. Angst at its worst causes needless worry and it leads us to grumble about the God who has set this thing in our path. So is it really as easy as it sounds to just stroll right in into Canaan? Well, no, on the one hand. But on the other hand, yes, it is. It is that easy. Verse 8, I have set the land before you. Go. The challenge Israel faces is one of trusting God. Has God really given this land to us? I've given the land before you. Is it really that easy to just walk in? If you believe that the Lord has opened a door that no one can shut, yes, it is. Um, It really is that easy. If we set our mind on things that are above, as the Israelites were supposed to. They were supposed to keep in mind, I have set the land before you. The sovereign God who completely destroyed the Egyptians, who covenanted with us at Sinai and promised us, he bound himself to the promise that he would work for our good if we obey him. That's all we have to do. So it's interesting, as Israel is concerned about fighting those in the land of Canaan, They set their minds on the wrong thing. They don't need to be worried about the Canaanites. They need to be worried about walking in obedience to the Lord who will take care of the Canaanites. It really is that simple. You obey the Lord, the land is yours. And that's that's, uh, not all that different from what we face as well. But, uh, verse 8, we'll end with this section before we move on. Uh, Israel is not commanded to do the impossible or even the difficult, just simply commanded to do, uh, to go in and take the land because the Lord makes their way prosperous. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and their offspring after them. Thoughts or questions over those few verses? Yes, so Israel walks out of Egypt uh, roughly day 15 of the first first month of their year. And this here is in verse 3, the first day of the 11th month of the 40th year. So they've been wandering in the wilderness for about 38 plus years. Yep, good question. All right, the next thing we're going to do is we're going to turn to our maps briefly that I have printed out. 
If you weren't able to grab one of these, it looks like there's at least one over there yet. And we'll uh, keep referencing these as time goes forward. I did my best to make sure that I have everything we need between now and chapter 4 printed out on these sheets. So please hang on to them. In verse 7, there are some geographical details that are given. First is, go to the hill country of the Amorites. So on the second page there, I have the Amorites on the southern side. That is the hill country of the Amorites that they are supposed to go to. Their actual target is going to be Kadesh Barnea, which was mentioned in verse 2, right? So it is 11 days' journey from Mount Horeb to Kadesh Barnea, which you can see on map 1. But they are to go to the hill country of the Amorites and all their neighbors in the Arabah. Now the Arabah is the Rift Valley, or we might call it the Jordan Valley, that runs from the Sea of Galilee all the way to the Sea of Aquaba, which is the left finger of the Red Sea. Right? So uh, the, the Areba runs that whole stretch from the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Red Sea. All their neighbors in the Areba, in the hill country, the hill country are almost certainly a reference to the Judean hills, which are further north than the hill country of the Amorites. So there's the hill country of the Amorites where they are going, but there's the hill country of Judah and Samaria that is north of that. And then it says the lowlands in the ESV. I have labeled that the Shephelah. That is what it is called, at least in modern Israel. Uh, That is where the land turns from being all hilly to being a little bit more rolly and decreasing in elevation before we end at the shore. And so in verse 7, the hill country of the Amorites... To all their neighbors in the Areba, north to south, the hill country, north to south, the lowlands, north to south, and in the Negeb. The Negeb means south. The word Negeb means south. So the south land, which is roughly where the Amorites are in the hill country, but probably even a little bit further north than where they actually camp. And by the sea coast, which is the Sea of the Mediterranean, the land of the Canaanites. And now here there is a little bit of a question. Uh, is the land of the Canaanites the same thing as the hill country of the Amorites and all of their neighbors? Or is the land of the Canaanites further north? Uh, referring to uh, what is basically the hill country, the Shvela, the shore, the Sea of Galilee, and going northward toward Lebanon. Commentators are divided. We'll talk about that maybe a bit more in just a second. But the land continues on. The land of the Canaanites and Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So if you look at the first map, you will see the giant expanse of land that Israel was told to conquer here in Deuteronomy 1. This land matches what we have in other places as well. Now, one of the things I want to point out is that Israel never actually had all of this land. Even under the reigns of David and Solomon, their political clout reached about this far, but these places uh, further north, Lebanon and all the way to the river Euphrates, that was never actually 
militarily possessed by the people of Israel. And what's really interesting is by the end of the conquest in Joshua 23, Joshua doesn't talk about the land from north to south as the land that he helped them conquer. He talks about the land from east to west and says, we still haven't even got this. So he says from the Jordan all the way to the sea coast, that's what I helped you conquer. But they didn't actually even have what, all, what went all the way from the sea coast from the Jordan. And so by the time Joshua dies, Israel has this comparatively small stretch of land as opposed to what Israel is sent to here in Deuteronomy 1. But this in Deuteronomy 1, in map 1, that is what the Lord has set before them. I've set this land before you. And what I want to hone in on for just a minute, uh, not because it has any great theological significance, though there is a nugget here we'll look at, um, more because when we come back to this, I think it's helpful to know this uh, so that when, when we read it on our own, we have a little bit of uh, grasp of what's happening here. In verse 7, turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites. Who or what are the Amorites in verse 7? The Amorite appears to be a generic term that encompasses a variety of somewhat distinct smaller groups. Think of it this way. We have African Americans, Asian Americans, Native Americans. Right? We, we have a variety of terms that we can put in front of American. But when we say we're an American or we are Americans, it can house all of those different subgroups. The terms Amorites and the term Canaanites function like American does for us, where it is a group uh, that maybe has primarily a reference in mind, such as when we talk to uh, someone outside the United States uh, and they talk about the American, they probably have in mind someone generally of white European descent. Um, American may have a predominant reference, but there are all sorts of subgroups within that big reference of American. Uh, Canaanites and Amorites can function that way. It's kind of a catch-all for derivative groups. And so if we go back to Genesis 10, verses 15 to 20, we get uh, what I have on the board there. We get a genealogical explanation. Uh, we're only going to look at a few verses here. I don't want to overtax this point, but I do think it's worth bearing out. So in Genesis 10... Verses 15 to 20. Canaan, who was a person, fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. So all of those just names, they dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Edma, and Zeboim as far as Lashah. Now nobody necessarily knows exactly what all of those places are, but roughly, it incidentally covers the ground roughly from the Jordan to the Mediterranean. 
that Joshua said, this is what I helped you conquer. Continuing on, though, uh, verse 20, these are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Now let's go to Genesis 15, where God promises Abraham a stretch of land. Genesis 15, verses 18 to 20. And he doesn't promise them a territory, per se, though it is territory. So Genesis 15, verse 18. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, And now he explains that land. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now what I think is worth noting is that several of those groups that are named in Genesis 15 are subgroups of Canaanites. So Canaanites are listed. But so are Canaan's descendants of the Jebusites, the Amorites, and the Girgashites. Not only that, he includes five other groups that are descendants from people. The Kenites, the Canaanites, the Cadmonites, the Hittite, and the Perizzite. All of those are people groups who happen to occupy a stretch of land predominantly possessed by Canaan. And his descendants. Now there's one odd group in there, the Rephaim, who are descendants, but not in the same sense that all of the other ones are. And we'll come to that later on in Deuteronomy. Right now, what I simply hope to point out is when, in Deuteronomy 1, when he says, go to the land of the Amorites, it's a generic term that encompasses a group of people. So when we see two groups of Amorites on the map, one connected to Moab, and one in the hill country, it almost certainly is a reference to different groups, but the same group, seeing how they are named for their ancestor. So we're dealing with um, a Judahite. David was a Judahite, but he was also an Israelite. A Judahite is a smaller subset of Israelite. The same thing happens with all of these pagan nations. That's the one thing I want to point out. And the second thing is this. God had given the land of Canaan originally to Canaan and his descendants. Now he is giving it to someone else. He is giving it to Israel. But this also explains why later on, in fact earlier on, let's go back up now to verse 4. Of Deuteronomy 1. So Deuteronomy 1 verse 4. After he had defeated Sihon the king of the Amorites who lived in Heshbon. And Og the king of Bashan who lived in Ashtaroth and Edrei. The reason those two kings are pointed out particularly is because they are Amorite kings. And what land did God tell Abraham he was going to end up having? The land of the Amorite. He didn't bother Moab, he didn't bother Edom, he didn't bother Ammon, and we'll come to that as we go along in the text. The reason those two kings are named is because the part of God's promises that Israel would have 
the land of the Amorite, some of that has already been fulfilled by the time Moses gives this address. So he's not only calling Israel to something future here throughout the book of Deuteronomy, he is calling them to look back to what the Lord has already done in beginning to fill his promise. So now when Moses starts this address and says to the Israelites, enter the land of Canaan, they have good reason to trust that the Lord is going to do as he said. He really has set the land before them. They've already tasted that the Lord has set that land before them. And so their confidence that he will, uh, the rest of the land lays open before them should grow. So uh, even looking at the genealogical lists, we should grow in our confidence that the Lord means what he says. And he has uh, equipped us to do as he has commanded. Uh, I will leave off uh, with those verses, thoughts, or questions over the geography aspect of it. Okay. And we'll put that aside for the rest of the morning. Unless something does crop up. But uh, Deuteronomy uh, verse uh, chapter 1. We'll move on here, starting in verse 9. Before Israel sets out from Sinai... Moses has a matter of business to attend to, and that is his inability to administrate the whole group of the Israelites. Verse 9, Then I said to you at that time, I am not able alone to bear you. Now the problem here is related to God's blessing, which he draws out in verse 10. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. Moses wishes for more of that. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he promised you. So what we can see here is that when Moses says that I cannot bear this people myself, it is related to the Lord's blessing, but not exactly blamed on the Lord's blessing. Moses doesn't look at the, new, the number of Israelites and say, this is a problem. What he does say is, this is a wonderful thing, and it creates some challenges. That number exacerbates the problem, which is, in verse 12, How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? It could also be translated, your load, your burden, and your contention, um, your lawsuits, your um, bickering as uh, Daniel Block calls it in his commentary. Now, that's what Moses finds to be the problem. And they are a tremendous burden upon his shoulders. Now, this is not an exaggeration. Let's flip back to Numbers 11. There are two texts that Deuteronomy 1 hearkens back to. One is Numbers 11, verses 10 to 17. And this language of burden and Moses' recognition of his inability to handle all of these people are the themes that overlap from Numbers 11 to Deuteronomy 1. So in Numbers 11, verse 10, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? 
Did I give birth to them? That you should say to me, carry them on your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that I swore to give to their fathers? Where am I going to get meat to give to all this people? So the issue that lies behind this, the reason the Israelites are grumbling, is because they they want to eat meat. Uh, They're tired of the manna. They want something more. Uh, Where am I going to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once if I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. This is clearly not the first time the Israelites have turned against Moses and grumbled with him and contended with him, uh, bickered toward him. Uh, This is a repeated occurrence. We can also look back real quick to Exodus 18. Now remember, Israel in the text was roughly just about to Sinai. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, comes and meets them in the plains of Sinai. And in Exodus 18, we'll start in verse 13, he gives advice to Moses who is dealing with the Israelites bickering toward one another. So in Exodus 18, starting in verse 13, The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone, and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God when they have a dispute. They come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and all the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and the statutes and and what they must do. Moreover, look for men who are able from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands of hundreds of fifties and tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all this people will go to their place in peace. So Jethro's advice to Moses is appoint people over the congregation of Israel, uh, elders and judges, who are able to decide the smaller matters and then the things too difficult for them, they should bring to you. But what was the Lord's advice to Moses in Numbers 11 when Moses could not bear all of the people alone? Moses complained, I can't do this. What was the Lord's solution? Numbers 11, verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, And bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. 
and I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. God's advice is gather people who are able to help administrate the burden, just like Jethro said, and I will put some of my spirit on them and they will bear the burden with you. Moses is recollecting what we find in Exodus 18 and what we find in Numbers 11. He is reminding the people of Israel, you are a burden. Now that might sound like a bitter old man complaining. That's not, I don't think, entirely what Moses is doing. I think what he's doing is he's drawing out the contrast between the goodness of the Lord on the one hand and the tendency toward faith, faithlessness of the people on the other hand. The first thing he does after he says, the Lord told us to leave Horeb, let us not forget, you are a difficult people. You're stiff-necked, you don't follow the Lord, and you need people over you to settle your disputes and lawsuits. You don't live the way God would have you live very well. Is that cruel? Or is Moses trying to draw the people's attention, look at what the Lord has done for you and has promised you. Don't be like this. Because if you are like this, you won't get what you have coming to you. Uh, so here he's, he's simply drawing the contrast. God's faithfulness on the one hand, your faithlessness on the other. And he starts right away with the internal administration of Israel as they go through, go through the wilderness. So we'll go back to Deuteronomy and we'll finish reading this section and we'll see the similarities and then we'll... we'll uh, Take that hand over there, Paul. But Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse, four, uh, verse 13. <clears throat> we'll start in verse 12. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 12. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. And the emphasis on that is good. Uh, they say, this is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, just like we saw in Exodus 18, and officers throughout your tribes, and I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all of the things you should do. So at verse 18, we'll mention this now. There are two commands that the Lord, uh, that Moses gives. The first is in verse 16. I commanded your judges at that time, or I charged your judges at this time. This is how you act. The second command is verse 18. I commanded 
you, which is all of the people, this is what you should do. So that follows again Jethro's advice in Exodus 18. Set these men over Israel to administrate the justice, but you teach all of the people everything that they are supposed to do. And that's exactly what he does in verse 18. He teaches the people, and he commands the judges, judge righteously. Don't show partiality, uh, so on and so forth. Now, let's go back real quickly Verse 11 and 12. May the Lord make you a thousand times what you are today. You are a bickering people. Why would Moses want more bickering people? Um, Well, unlike any other people group, the growth of the Israelites is attributed to the promises of God to the ancestors. As this people grows, it is the demonstration of God's faithfulness in a way that the growth of the Egyptians is not. In a way that the growth of the Babylonian and the Assyrian, later on, are not. The growth of God's people is always attributed to the faithfulness of God worked out through his promise. Moses wants the glory of God to be on display. And if that involves the increased numbers of a bickering people, so be it. Above all things, Moses is after the Lord's honor. And their growth is attributed solely to the Lord's work. Now this is like and not like the church. Uh, First, Generally, the church is comprised of uh, regenerate people. Uh, So there's a tremendous difference between the type of people Moses was most likely dealing with and the type of people uh, I certainly get to deal with. A vast difference. Um, Regenerate people in the case of the church. However, the the true church only grows by following the methods that God has given so that God alone receives the glory. The church grows by disciples making disciples. That's it. Disciples making disciples through the proclamation of the word. That's the plan. And when that happens, no leader gets the glory in the same way Moses gets no glory for the growth of the people. No one can cause another person to be spiritually born again any more than Moses can cause the Israelites' fertility to increase. Right? That's outside his purview. However, Moses does work so that the Israelites might grow spiritually, and that's what we are to do too. We, we aim to grow spiritually so that the church grows, and therefore we have the similarity. The Lord's, the Lord's glory increases with the growth of the church because only the Lord can grow the church. And so Moses is, is after that, same as we ought to be. Thoughts or questions over that material?
Yeah. Yeah, we can cut ourselves out of the blessing of the growth. Yep. This is something that touched on a lot of things you spoke of, but you have to fast forward 700 years or so from Deuteronomy where the people are in exile and Ezekiel wants to tell them a little bit of history that says it like this. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of Man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord to Jerusalem, Your word origin and your birth are in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother was a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water or cleansed you, or no salt was rubbed with you, or wrapped, or wrapped in swaddled clothes. No, I pitied you. Uh, and basically, it gives this illustration of a baby born to these pagan people thrown out in the field to die, God comes along and says to them, live. Now, when you look at it, you say, no, 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 that's not, that's not Jerusalem's birth. That's not their origin. You know, they were from Abraham. Chaldeans went up to Ur and then did all the patriarchs. You know, they're, they're not from this, but Ezekiel doesn't seem to know his, his, his life history. He says, no, your father, you're from the Canaanites, and your father was an Amorite, and your mother was a Hittite. But he's making the spiritual uh, origins of at this time with the people of Iran. That's, the, mm-hmm. that's speaking of God's faithfulness and our tendency to be unfaithful. But I just thought that was kind of interesting how you were talking about the, the Canaanites involving all these kinds of peoples. And it's just this matter of spiritual. Anything? Yeah, I took the comment from just your, your comment about the church grows by almost making disciples of people and then grow out. As we witnessed firsthand a number of years ago, a church that grew substantially. Uh, and eventually they, they felt, I think as a body, they felt that the growth was because they were. great illustration. Thank you. Okay. Uh, We've got just a couple more minutes here. Uh, We'll look really briefly uh, towards the end of this section in Deuteronomy 1 here. I didn't get to make any explanation of it. Uh, Might be worth doing. First, um, a thought about biblical interpretation Uh, Exodus 18, Numbers 11, and Deuteronomy 1 all create a quite convoluted chronological 
articulation of how the Israelite structure of elders and judges and officers came into play. Um, Chronologically, we would have to say, well, it happened before Sinai, it happened after Sinai, or when they were leaving Sinai, and then it happened later on again, after they had been gone from Sinai for quite some time. Because it gives three different time periods, if you will, one in Exodus, one in Numbers, one in Deuteronomy. And not only that, the methods all differ. In Exodus 18, Moses is to appoint men who have certain qualifications. In Numbers 11, Moses is told to appoint elders who are elders. And in Deuteronomy, Moses says, choose for yourself. Uh, Choose for your tribes, understanding, experienced, and wise men, and I will set them as your heads. So Deuteronomy, unlike the other texts, uh, gives a democratic element to the election of Israel's elders. And if we want to know which way is it, I don't think we can say this is the way it was uh, for certain. So just keep in mind, one, that chronology isn't always as simple as the text appears to make chronology be. Uh, It's a little bit convoluted and mysterious to us here, though I think we could synthesize well enough. Uh, the, The thing I want to draw your attention to, though, is that Israel is told to choose for themselves their heads in Deuteronomy 1. That's what this text focuses, so that's where we'll focus. There's an element of democratic uh, appointment, but then it is confirmed by Moses, uh, who appoints them as their heads. So they are to choose men who will be their heads, and then Moses took the heads of the tribes in verse 15, And he set them over them as commanders and commanders and commanders and commanders and officers. And then he turns and charges the the judges at that time. So here we have four different designations for perhaps what we would call offices in Israel. There are elders, officers or commanders, officials, uh, heads, Tribe, uh, heads of tribes and judges. What are we to make of all of that? I'm not going to explain all of that, but I will draw your attention to this. So on the back of the first map, uh, I have what is roughly the positions, the societal or authoritative positions in Israel. I'm not going to explain them. I will leave them simply for your viewing. Uh, And again, I'll have these sheets available for quite a while. I'll just leave them set out, so if you don't have them now, uh, you can grab them later. Uh, You can look at that and kind of see what the distinctions seem to be, at least in the early stages of Israelites' history. There may have been some changes later on, but um, from Deuteronomy through Joshua and arguably even into Judges, that's what they have. But then the judges are to judge righteously between the native Israelite and the native Israelite, as well as the sojourner who is living among them. And here's one of Deuteronomy's distinctives. Non-ethnic Israelites who live in Israel are entitled to all of the rights of a full Israelite. That is significant. Um, Not only did no other culture have that, uh, we struggle for that same sort of mentality even in the church in our own day. Um, And I'll leave it at that because we'll run into it many more times in the future. Uh, That is all I really had for today.
you have any questions, I'll be here. If not, I will see you next week.